Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up in this hour, the Koraputs Survivors Project, religious extremism in India, and the proper role of journalism. We'll be talking about advocacy journalism. And the Morris uh, Media Lecture, which is uh, coming up on the USU campus uh, later today. In 2008, a group of armed Hindu extremists attacked and burned a village of Christians in Odisha State in India, seeking to forcefully reintegrate the villagers into the caste system left behind by their Christian beliefs. Their survivors fled into the jungle to escape. National Geographic photojournalist Lynn Johnson and human rights advocate Jen Safran have organized the Koraput Survivors Project. And later this morning, they'll give a lecture entitled Building Bridges When Journalism and Advocacy Meet. That's part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series on the USU campus. That's at 11.30 this morning in the Performance Hall on the USU campus. Their visit to USU, a joint uh, presentation of the Kane College of the Arts and the Journalism and Communication Department at USU. On the program today, we're going to talk uh, with Lynn Safran, Jen Safran and uh, Lynn Johnson, also uh, with other members of the Corporate Survivors Project, Martin Peterson and uh, Christy Benedict, uh, about religious extremism in India. Later in the program, we'll talk about the furor over rape in India, and we'll talk about what journalists should properly do, witness uh, to the world or advocate for people and causes. Lynn Johnson, for one, says at this time in her career, she felt it was time to cross that line to advocacy. And uh, I wondered uh, whether this, uh, the, the conflict was the whole uh, idea of having to return to the caste system, coming back from Christianity uh, into the uh, more mainstream Hindu society, at least as the Hindu extremists uh, uh, felt it. And that's the question I put first to Lynn Johnson. It's actually a complicated situation, but uh, basically there's the caste system in India conspires to keep people at a very high or low uh, station in life. And the people that I met while I was on assignment for National Geographic doing a story about the apostles, they are uh, considered, most of them are considered untouchables or Dalit. So they are basically invisible. They are the ditch diggers, the garbage collectors, the grave diggers, the you know, uh, the folks who do all the menial, most menial labor. So many of the folks choose Christianity as a way to uh, take themselves out of that, um, you know, terrible destiny uh, because it's the destiny of their children and their grandchildren, great grandchildren as well. Um, but once they find this faith. They are often uh, quite strong in that faith, and uh, that was tested to an extreme when uh, five years ago this particular group of people were uh, surrounded by extremists, um, religious zealots, and forced uh, at machete point, gunpoint, uh, rock uh, throwing point uh, out of their village and they were chased into the forest where they ran for their lives. And for their religious beliefs. Oh, very specifically for their religious beliefs. And yeah. of course, the religion challenges, um, I mean, it challenges many things in the status quo. It challenges the power base of the uh, Hindu religion. It challenges that economically. And you know, Jen and I have learned uh, in conversation with people here that it's not dissimilar to what the uh, what the Mormon folks experienced in their early 
lives uh, as a church, and that is being you know persecuted for faith and having to run for their very lives. Mm. So I think we're in the perfect place to try to understand what that's been like and to try to seek help for these uh, for these folks in India. Hmm. We bring you in, uh, Jen Saffron. I- I'm undoubtedly naive. I-, I thought that there had been progress past the caste system in India. Well, there has been on a federal level. So not unlike the U.S., uh, in India there are states. So there's federal law and state law. In Odisha State, where Lynn and I are working now in partnership with Pastor Debendra Singh, the state requires that you still register your caste. And it's really a form of social control. So on one hand, we're talking about religious extremism. And on the other hand, as Lynn underlined, it's really about power. Um, So if you decide to be a Christian, you really are giving up the rights that are attributed to your caste, which can include things like food assistance, education funds, health, and you're really on your own. Also, to become a Christian, you have to come up against not just the caste system, but what are called anti-conversion laws. So whereas, again, federally, these laws are um, outlawed by state, they're still enacted. In Odisha, if you want to become a Christian, you have to go to the government and actually ask permission. And they may grant that or not. Um, And so by being a Christian in Odisha state, which is uh, in the top five poorest states in India, um, you're really saying you're putting your life at risk. Um, This group of Christians is remarkable to Lynn and myself because they've chosen to stay together despite their persecution. Again, not unlike the Mormon church. They're together and they're preserving their faith and they're striving forward. So the Corporate Survivors Project really is about helping this particular community rebuild their village, reestablish their businesses, and uplift their lives. So they they flood into the jungle— uh, they now returned. What, what's the, what's their situation now? No, they actually uh, fled into the jungle with nothing other than their the clothes on their backs and their children in their arms and their elders on their backs and um, and they traveled through the jungle, which is a very dangerous place. You can imagine wildlife, um, snakes, various forms of invisible invisible uh, threats. And uh, they came out of the jungle in, in a town called Koraput, and that's where I met them. So that's oh, why... Oh, I see. I see. This wasn't their original town. It was it's not their original yeah. town, yes. They they were in a much more rural area. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of, Tom, I sort of feel like I need to say, um, you know, we're this this project is really about peace. It's about helping others and about fostering a more peaceful world. So it's important for people to understand that, you know, Christians are welcome in India. There are 47 million Christians in India, but that's primarily in the south uh, of the country. This particular state happens to be a very conservative state. And so uh, up until now, the government has looked the other way during these attacks. And the attacks happen primarily at the hands of um, extreme right-wing, uh, violent Hindu sect. Mm-hmm. So, um, and those people also physically threaten moderate Hindus and encourage them to go along. Mm-hmm. So perhaps they turn their backs, but of course that complicity is, well, it's up to them to f- figure out how to deal with that in their faith. But mm-hmm. um, but it's not, 
you know, we don't want to to cast these folks as evil. They are they are probably struggling with their own uh, issues, and um, all I know is that I feel that it's time to step from being a photojournalist, where we're supposed to be objective, to being an activist, which is uh, a much more engaged role. That's exactly the topic of the lecture, right, um, <laughs> on, on the Utah State University campus. This is an interesting – it's a trend, I understand, in journalism, uh, advocacy journalism. In, a, uh, in an article written by Jen Saffron about her friend, Lynn Johnson, apparently when you were asked to describe yourself, Lynn Johnson, you, you said invisible. And I guess that's sort of the traditional role of, of uh, especially a photographer, even more so than a, than a journalist. You're, you're saying it's time for you to, to cross that line. Is there, is there a line? Is it, is it? Well, I think there is a line, actually. Um, I think it's very important for uh, every journalist, whether you use a camera, the internet, uh, whether you're a writer, whatever, to to be fair in the reporting of any given story. But when I met these folks, uh, I realized that it was time after 35 plus years of working as a photographer that that it was uh, my turn to move to action. I always want the photographs to move the reader to action. And I thought, oh, my now I need to step up. And so it's um, through that process of awareness that I asked for Jen's help, and we in turn have asked for the help of people here, um, uh, Martin and um, and Christy and, and other folks, uh, uh, Charity Anywhere is our partner here now as well. And so, and I feel like we've kind of find, found this home, uh, away from home, mm-hmm. and uh, people who are like-minded and, you know, walking a spiritual path that... I don't know. It just feels like this is absolutely the right place to be. And in a spiritual path that includes service, I think that, you know, Lynn and I have created this project with Debendra Singh in initiated it in the beginning in the spirit of public servitude. And we do this as volunteers. All the contributions that are accepted to support the project go completely to the project. We have zero overhead. And I think that it's really in the spirit that we've been enlarging our collaborations and when we talk about traditional journalism, we may think about one author or one singular uh, person who's driving the content. But in this project, it's really many people who are coming together in the spirit of collaboration. I, I can certainly understand um, the, the imp- impulse to cross that line, as we said. You want to help the people, obviously, and maybe more than you could with just telling the story, although that's very powerful. And that's the traditional role of, of journalism, mm-hmm. telling the story. Um, is there pushback? Do you, do you get people saying, uh, no, you've crossed an important line, you shouldn't do that, uh, journalists should mm-hmm. bear witness, and, and that's it? Actually, no one has pushed back. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself is fascinating, that perhaps we as journalists understand that if we stay in our strict role as observers and documentarians, that we actually are turning away from our responsibility as human beings and members of this universal community. And so, um, you know, I could call Martin, who's sitting here um, to my right, and I could say, oh, help us, please. And Martin's agreed to be part of, he's going to India, we're going back, he's going with us, Christy's going with us, we're taking a medical group. Um, I could pass that to him. But then, 
what fuels my passion for not only my photojournalistic work, uh, but also for, you know, every time I lift that camera to my eye, I have to care. I mean, I'm, I'm photographing from, you know, I want to be a complete human being. I want to be the deepest, most thoughtful, most caring person possible. And if you stay at arm's length from life's experiences and challenges, you will never reach that point. So... Uh, let me bring in uh, Martin. I saw you, you you were nodding your head a bit when I was talking about that line between uh, traditional journalism and uh, advocacy journalism. I wonder first what brought you to this project. My next door neighbor, Christy Benedict. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, we just happened to live next door to each other, and, and Christy and her husband have been on uh, many uh, medical missions. Well, Christy's brother saw the article, maybe I'd have Christy tell the story, but. Uh, Saw the article in in the March issue of the National Geographic last year, and and her brother got a hold of Lynn and was asking her about uh, the about the photography, and then uh, Lynn mentioned the project, and he said, "Well, I know a sister. I have a sister that ought to be involved in this. Am I correct, Christy?" Yeah, much. And and so. Um, Christy got involved, uh, mentioned it to me, and uh, this was much more than a, a Christy and her husband and some others go on medical missions all the time. And But this was much larger because this involves housing and sanitation and water and education and those things that make up a total life. And so uh, I got involved, uh, and um, and it's been very... Um, rewarding so far, and I haven't even gone to India yet. <laughs> oh, haven't been to India yet. Uh, I wonder if 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 Lynn Johnson had played the kind of the traditional role, brought this to your attention, told the story, you'd, you'd seen the photographs, and not been an advocate. Uh, would that have been enough to get you involved? Do you, do you do you think there's there's a place for this? Would would you advocate for more advocacy journalism? I, guess I would have said that's a nice article, and those poor people. I hope somebody helps them someday. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 saying uh, you know, more journalists should cross that line? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, because we're total people, and it's. Um, but we each have to find those things that strike our heart. It can't be. It has to be genuine, and when it's genuine, for any good cause, then you'll feel it, and that will drive you. I turn to Christy Benedict. Uh, you, we heard a bit of uh, how you got involved. And this, I want to ask you the same same thing. If you'd just seen the photographs, hadn't perhaps had that advocacy directed perhaps at, at your people like you, would, just would you have Just to look at the involved? photographs, I would have had the same impression as Martin. But going on medical expeditions and going on humanitarian expeditions, you have to have a contact. You have to have an in-country contact, and you have to have someone that will get you into the country and get you set up for those expeditions. And just looking at the photographs or reading the story would not have given us the contacts that we needed to go in to help those people. So having had Lynn's expertise and Jen's expertise of actually having been there, having having had them meet Debendra, having had him on the other side that could set the whole program up for us, we would not have had those contacts and those possibilities to even go in and help them. If you just joined us, we're talking about religious extremism in India. We are talking about a group of people, which were uh, uh, 
evicted from their village because they had embraced Christianity. And the uh, Corporate Survivors Project, uh, in which uh, the, my four guests today are involved, are uh, trying to help these people combat religious extremism in India. We're also talking about uh, this interesting notion of advocacy journalism and where the proper line is and where a journalist should be. And Lynn Johnson is uh, advocating for crossing that line. You felt you said you felt like in your life it was it was it was time. Do you think earlier in your career you would have you would have done this? Um hmm, great question. Well, I think in any given situation when you connect with someone that you're you're uh, photographing or documenting you're always giving of yourself every time you sit down uh, the camera is not the only uh, tool uh, listening is is probably the primary uh, goal I mean you do that for a living you know the power of listening you know the power of presence and, and attention and I think um, my last understanding as I mature as a woman and a journalist is is to believe that 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 process of listening is actually a great also a great gift for mm. for both sides mm-hmm. um, but I do think at some point it became clear that uh, i couldn't you know i i couldn't um i could i just couldn't stop there mm-hmm. and it's not every situation i mean Often, when I'm on a site for geographic, and some, I mean, most of my work is in African Asian, usually with uh, poor uh, and and displaced people, people who are living at risk, people who are living on the margins, and I think all photographers that that travel, or I hope, uh, will, you know, provide some food. Will I mean, we're never supposed to pay people for photographs, but there are ways to say thank you. You know, buy a goat for a for a family or you know there are also there are also things as a human being you can't turn away from mm. and i think that's the measure of your humanity you you have to photograph from who you are mm-hmm. and if you are not first and foremost a human being and a compassionate one then that that alters the photographs mm. and um yeah i just want to echo the whole point that lynn just made about listening i mean our work is really about uh, being in the service of others, it's easy for, you know, us to take the traditional tack of we're going to go in and look at something. But in this regard, in advocacy journalism, we're we're going in and looking with, and it requires a balance between um, our own projections as Westerners, as people who have our own ideas and passions, and what the community says they need and what they beseech from us. Advocacy in and of itself is advocating for. And so that's really our work. I think that um, it really requires a lot of uh, sublimation and humility. It's easy for our, our privileged selves. You know, we come from good lives, and it's easy for us to go into a community and say, well, my gosh, of course we know what to do. We should be doing these things, and this seems so simple, and how come we can't contract somebody to do this, and why can't we do that? And you know, on the flip side, it's a lot harder to slow down a bit and take a look at what are people really saying to us about what they want for their community. Lynn and I um, have a broad vision for essentially world peace, and we're not kidding about it. At the same time, we have to balance that with the reality of the fact that people are starving every day 
you know, that we're working in a community where 48% of all women are chronically malnourished. They're starving to death. And so the immediacy of that against the longer-term prospect of building uh, a kind of utopian village, for lack of a better word, can be challenging. Um, but I just really want to echo in what Lynn has shared about listening. And, you know, I know I can be very extroverted. It's hard for me. You know, when we work together, I have to remind myself to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> like, dial it back, Jen. Dial it back. We're uh, talking with uh, Jen Saffron and Lynn Johnson, uh, uh, National Geographic photojournalist Lynn Johnson, human rights advocate Jen Saffron. We're also joined by uh, Martin Peterson and uh, Christy Benedict with the Coraput Survivors Project. Latest project from uh, Johnson Saffron is overcoming religious extremism in India. This is a group of people who were evicted from their village, had to flee into the jungle uh, because of their Christian beliefs. We'll uh, talk more about and uh, Lynn Johnson and uh, Jen Saffron will be giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the USU campus at 11.30 this morning in the Performance Hall on the Utah State University campus in Logan. Everyone is welcome. The title of the lecture, Building Bridges When Journalism and Advocacy Meet. We're talking about religious extremism in India and the proper role of journalism. Later in the program, we'll be talking about rape in India. Jen Saffron and Dylan Johnson have uh, traveled extensively in India, have some very definite uh, opinions on this latest furor. And more coming up following the break. From the Top celebrates the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this week with a lineup of young musicians who reflect his spirit. We've got the powerful sound of the Boston Children's Chorus. We'll hear the music of the first Pulitzer Prize-winning African-American composer and more. This is Christopher O'Reilly. Join me this week for From the Top's Martin Luther King special. Friday afternoon at 2, repeated Sunday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that giving back never goes out of style? Despite all the new toys in stores and fancy holiday apps online, volunteer work remains one of the best ways to spend the season. Try service learning projects with your family this year and make some memories that you'll never want to return. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. It's Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. We are on tape today, so no phone calls, but you're certainly welcome to comment on today's subject about advocacy journalism. Uh, if you have any questions about the Corput Survivors Project and religious extremism in India, uh, you can join us online at upr.org. Just click on Access Utah and today's uh, program. Uh, you can join us also on Twitter at hashtag AccessUtah and on Facebook as well. We'd love to have uh, your comments, your reaction to the program today. If you would like to find out more about the Coraput Survivors Project and perhaps help, uh, it's communityhousepittsburgh.org slash Coraput. And you spell Coraput K-O-R-A-P-U-T. They're also on Facebook at uh, Help Coraput Survivors. Jen Saffron, who's a human rights advocate, and Lynn Johnson, photojournalist for National Geographic, will be giving the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the USU campus today at 11.30 a.m. in the Performance Hall, and everyone is welcome. Their visit is sponsored by the Kane College of the Arts at USU and the Journalism and Communication Department in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. 
We're with uh, Lynn Johnson, photojournalist with the uh, National Geographic, and Jen Saffron, who's a human rights advocate. Uh, they are with uh, the Corporate Survivors Project. This is in India, a group of people there who were evicted from their uh, uh, village, knife point, rock point, whatever, threat of violence, because they had converted to Christianity, fled into the jungle, and uh, now this uh, project is trying to help these people. We're talking about religious extremism in India, we're talking about uh, advocacy journalism. Is there a line? Where is the line? And where should journalists be in terms of uh, purely witnessing for these events or um, more advocacy uh, for people like the Corporate Survivors Project? Well, I think when we talk about um, advocacy journalism, first of all, it's it's different. It's not propaganda. We're not uh, mm-hmm. here propagandizing. Um, but we are wanting to raise awareness in a very direct way that causes social action. Um, I believe that when we work uh, with advocacy journalism, we're really taking a look at also new forms of journalism that can help us directly advocate, such as social media, such as blogs. Um, This is very different than traditional print journalism, um, which takes a long time to produce. When Lynn produces a, a piece for National Geographic, it's usually, what, six months of production, six months before it comes out, probably a year, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're working from a perspective of advocacy journalism, it's not just the the methods of working d- in direct partnership with community organizations, but it's also the methods of how we get the message out. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, another point I want to talk about on, on this, and we'll get on talking uh, directly about the Corporate uh, Survivors uh, Project. Um, but given that it's not propaganda, I think most people realize it's not. On the other side, you might have traditional journalists who frown on advocacy mm-hmm. journalism, mm-hmm. who say the key would be, and I'm talking for them, not necessarily my own point of view, the key would be the impartiality. Mm-hmm. And the uh, we're not with these people. We're witnessing. We're, we're sort of uh, outside. Now, there's a lot of gray area there, and you can tell yourself you're totally impartial, and, and maybe you're not, but, it, but at least that's a, a sort of a, a, a prized belief mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in traditional journalism. Right. Well, I do think it is a belief and not a reality, and that's part of the problem. So it can be, it can be held up as a standard, but the truth is, is that we all uh, do our work from who we are. So we already have filters in our uh, gathering, in our observation, in our delivery of, of our art form or our, the information we provide. I mean, I'm still uncomfortable with that line and where it exists and how it moves and how permeable it is, the line between advocacy and journalism. So I actually am not, you know, I I feel one of the most important things is that the reader must believe in the integrity of the material. I mean, when you're out shooting for National Geographic, you you have to have complete integrity in in the way you gather and uh, in the way you treat people in the field and uh, the respect that you afford to to the reader. So uh, this this advocacy work didn't begin until after I was done with the project. Mm -hmm. It was only, you know, months later that, uh, you know, Jen and I uh, joined together and and then found uh, Martin and uh, Christy and Mike and Gordon and others to collaborate. So So, that would be a key for you? Uh, You you go in, you do the project, maybe afterwards you then advocate? Yes, because I think it takes time for that to bubble up and for that sense of what can you do to help. And and as I said, this is the first time that I've 
I've really embraced a project like this. Mm. So, yes, there. So I do, you know, I don't pretend to know where that line is, and I think it may shift and move. So, um, I, I also. Were you going to ask me a question? Uh, yes, and you, maybe you were going to where I was uh, going to ask you anyway. We'll see. Um, I was asking, going to ask you as as a human rights advocate. Right. Uh, you've partnered up with a photojournalist in, right. in, in this. Where would you like to see more journalists? I'm guessing you'd like to see maybe more journalists advocating. Well, I think first and foremost, it's a it's a fallacy to think that we can separate ourselves from ourselves. So I think when we mm. say, uh, well, there's my objective self, and there's my non-objective self, or there's my spiritual self, and then my real life, or there's, you know, my deeply held passionate beliefs, and then there's my assignment. Um, I think there are a few things that we should make clear. One is that both Lynn and I work essentially for ourselves, which is really a gift. And it's a gift we've given ourselves, and we can say no to what we don't want to work on, and we say yes to what we do want to work on. And I think that in and of itself grants us a great privilege in our ability to self-select projects and ideas and and, um, editorial projects that speak to who we are as people Mm. Um, and also who we'd like to – what we might want to explore about ourselves. Um, Mm. We might want to take on a project or an idea or a story that is worth exploring for the sake of our own edification too. Mm. so I think first and foremost, it's true what Lynn has said. You know, we come to our projects with what we might call our mental model or all of our experiences, our beliefs, our our ethos comes to our work, both in photography and in human rights and in writing. Um, I teach at university, and when I'm teaching, I'm not separating my passionate beliefs from my scholarship. It'd be crazy to think that those two things are distinct. Um, as a human rights advocate, I think that there is no shortage. There, there is certainly not a shortage of anything that we could be working on human rights-wise on the globe right now. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah, that, that's so, certainly true. I mean, there's so many mm. issues. It's kind of unbelievable. So how does one decide? Um, when, when Lynn approached me about the corporate project, we set up the corporate project uh, as an organization. Um, I wrote to my, my mother who is a big charitable person, and said, would you make a contribution? And she wrote to me, and she was very clear. She's like, I received so many solicitations. I have no idea how to differentiate. And we had this whole conversation. Well, well, of course you do. I mean, just take a look at yourself. I think in terms of your question about do I believe that more journalists should be advocates, I think that's really a personal question for each journalist. Um, certainly everyone comes to their work um, from their own perspective. And, and frankly, some people do it as a job. Um, I I would hate to think that about everybody, but I do think we all certainly um, are in this work because something has called to us in terms of our passion for the truth and our willingness to share information uh, really is a hallmark of democracy, certainly in our culture. So I believe that at base, I would hope that most people who are working journalistically have come to it because of, of a passion for what I just said. And at best, if people find an issue they think is really speaking to them, like Lynn found the Corput Project spoke to her through Anil, um, one of the people that she photographed, and that spoke to her so deeply that she began to generate advocacy. And uh, I'm looking at a photograph of Anil, and this is on the publicity materials for the, the USU event. What, what spoke to you about Anil? 
Well, Anil spoke to me literally. Oh, literally. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh, because we I should was... we should say describe the the maybe you could describe the photo for us. This is a young man. Yes. So this is a young man. Uh, when I met him, this was four years after the attack, and all of these folks were living as refugees in abandoned buildings, basically. And so he he was about fifteen at the time of the attack. I'm looking at Anil through a Hasselblad camera, which is a fairly large square format camera, and it's a very formal way of photographing people in a slow way. It's it's not like a digital point-and-shoot, you know, rapid-fire, aggressive camera. It's very thoughtful, one click, another click. You wind the film between each frame you listen in between each frame. And so I'm listening to his story, and this is his story. As a young man, he was tied. It was unclear by the uh, uh, translation, but he was either tied to a pole or tied to a cross, and he was beaten for eight hours. His attackers, who were these extremists, uh, said to him, "What, what will you do now? Will your God save you now? And they just continued to beat him. And um, he realized that he was his life was slipping away. And what he said to me is that he said, uh, I said to the Lord, you can take me or you can allow me to live. And either way, my life is yours. And um, ultimately, someone came after him with an axe and a Hindu man even though it was extreme Hindus who were attacking him, another Hindu man stepped in and saved him and uh, kind of redirected the mob. And and, uh, and Anil survived and was untied and fled into the forest with his family. So on listening to his story, I, I just thought, oh, I mean, as a human being, I thought, oh, my God, I'm like, been doing this for 35 years. I've seen so much. And yet, I feel I've done nothing. I've contributed nothing. Uh, What amazing courage to say that, you know, if they came for me again, I would, I would profess my belief and die for this belief. And that is the true measure of any belief, isn't it not? So I, I hope that we all have the opportunity to have such a profound experience, to measure our humanity by, um, you know, that point at which we are moved to action. And um, I don't know, you know, I just think back to that courtyard. It was dusty, hot, sweat dripping down. You know, I couldn't even see to focus practically from between the sweat and the tears. And... um, to think of that and then to think how far we've come just uh, but we're still just barely climbing out of the pit but nonetheless I feel like we now have a partnership with folks here that will enable us to do some very basic things Mm. which are to um, dig some wells dig some latrines try to build some houses we already thanks to Christie's uh, brother Mike, uh, we have uh, a small education fund that people contribute to. It's like five dollars, ten dollars a month. You know, we've been able to build a little bamboo uh, house in the courtyard uh, where the kids go to school, 
And I think it's made a tremendous difference in the level of hope for Mm. these folks. Yeah, that's important. Yes. Jen Saffron, I'm curious, and I'm sure you think about this a lot as as, as a human rights advocate, and try to get people across the line from being interested to taking action. Yes. What, what causes people to, to do that? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, an invitation is a, a place to start. I mean, I'm in this project because Lynn invited me. I mean, that's a great example. Uh, and then we reached out, and we have Christy and Martin here with us. Um, I think that... I used to have this saying, if you really care about something, then you should share about it with someone who's really committedly listening to you 10 times a day. And I challenge people to do that. 10 times a day, find 10 people who are interested in hearing about something that you're working on. And uh, what, what happens really is just an incredible network opens up. That's exactly why we're here in Utah. Um, really exactly what Lynn has shared that we began this project and now we have found ourselves in the midst of collaboration. That's where advocacy begins um, and it's where people um, work from a place of the common good that we can move forward. I think when we come from agenda, I think a lot of people mistake advocacy for agenda. It's not. Um, But I think when people come from agenda, it's all ego-based and Nothing really great could come from that. Um, advocacy is, is, again, about recognizing um, our shared humanity and how this group of people who is essential, they, they are essentially helpless. If they are helpless and I am not, I am called to speak. And uh, I think that that's, for me, a deeply held spiritual belief. I know when Lynn... And I first began this project, the first thing I said was, come to church. Um, it's time to open up, <laughs> you know, from like, my church. point of view as a Christian. <laughs> church? You want me to come to church? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, should, uh, I should ask uh, Martin and, and Christy, you've, you've gotten involved in this project, what, uh, what drew you in? And, and that, that essential question, from interest to involvement, what, uh, what makes a person cross that line? There are so many people in the world that need assistance of some sort. Those of us that live in this great United States are so blessed. Um, We have much to give. And so we need to give. And, And so when something comes along that's obvious the help is needed, um, and there are competent people to help lead that, then why not join? Uh, it may, and it will likely not be convenient. It almost never is. But just like I say, buck it up and get on with it and use the talents God's given you and make it go forward. Christy, what, your thoughts on that same question? What, why do people get involved? Uh, because a lot, you know, a lot of us uh, hang back. We're heartbroken by photographs or whatever or the, or the stories of people. One, I think one thing that paralyzes people is so much need in the world. Mm-hmm. But what, uh... I have um, team-led multiple trips. Usually we do go to South America. That is definitely my comfort zone since I speak Spanish, and that's where we usually go. So this trip is definitely out of my comfort zone. 
I felt but you're doing it. I'm doing it. But I felt like when I got the call from Lynn and she told me the situation, I, I thought to myself, what are the odds that someone in India would come in contact from someone in Pittsburgh who would then contact my brother, or that would be in contact with my brother in Idaho Falls who would then contact me? And I felt a spiritual experience that said, this is where I'm supposed to be, and this is what I need to do. So that's how I converted myself to the project, was saying, this is what I have to do. I find that on all of the expeditions that we do, that the team members always get more out of the project than those that we go to serve. Hmm. So that's one thing that I would encourage others to sign up for the teams. That's Christy Benedict. She's with the Corporate Survivors Project. We're talking with Martin Peterson, also with the project, and Jen Saffron, human rights advocate, and with Lynn Johnson, National Geographic photojournalist. Uh, Lynn Johnson and Jen Saffron will be giving the Morris Media and Society lecture titled Building Bridges When Journalism and Advocacy Meet. That's on the USU campus, 11.30 this morning at the Performance Hall, and everyone is invited. More coming up in the next part of the program. We'll be talking about rape in India when we come back from the break. Waste not. Don't use running water to thaw food. Defrost food in the refrigerator for water efficiency and food safety. Another water efficiency tip, only run your washing machine and dishwasher with full loads. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jen Saffron, human rights advocate, and Lynn Johnson. The Corporate Survivors Project, Religious Extremism in India, and uh, the Proper Role of Journalism. Uh, Jen Saffron and uh, Lynn Johnson will be giving the building, uh, giving a lecture. It'll be called Building Bridges When Journalism and Advocacy Meet. It's part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series, and that's 11.30 this morning in the Performance Hall on the USU campus. Everyone is welcome. By the way, if you'd like to find out more and uh, perhaps help with the Corporate Survivors Project, a group of Christians who were displaced uh, by Hindu extremists, um, the uh, place to go would be uh, communityhousepittsburgh.org slash coraput. And uh, we're on tape of this part of the program, but you can certainly join the conversation at upr.org on Facebook and Twitter. Lynn Johnson, this is uh, your quote. I think this is probably from the article that uh, Jen Safran wrote on you. Stories are the ways we understand our lives in the world. You've just told us this powerful story. Uh, I wonder if you'd tell us another. Another? And specifically maybe about the corporate's survivors. Hmm. Well, when Jen and I went back to visit together, so now we're completely in the advocacy camp, being women, we we believe that um, if women who are in charge of all child care, maternal and infant health, um, you know, water, we, water, food, uh, you know, it's it's I mean, all the U.N. statistics make it very clear that when you support the women of a village, then the entire village prospers. So we decided that, uh, being women, that one of our highest goals was to um, uh, bring the the group of women together and 
and try to make it clear that they were leaders in this community because women don't really have standing there. They don't have voice. And we had the most amazing meeting. When we announced it, um, Jen likes to tell this story, but the first person in the room was actually a man. <laughs> this we is meet. a women's meeting. It's a women's <laughs> meeting. So the first person in the room is a guy. We chased him out. And then 40 women came into the room with their children. We talked about sanitation. We talked about uh, their power and their voice. And we we shared their stories. Um, we listened to them talk about the night when they had to flee and how they had the ch- their children on their backs and how they had to carry their elders. Uh, the stories are actually quite powerful. And in the end... In almost the dark, with only a candle lighting the whole group, um, we stood and we sang in this entire little room that had at one point been used for, you know, as a, a, a latrine for animals and humans. I mean, that was the nature of where they were living in the beginning. It was filled with this incredible joy and song and uh, everyone was elevated. And so I think that um, that these are very powerful people. And, and the goal is, is for them to be independent, not uh, subservient to donors or to their uh, most recent violent past. Mm. So the goal is for them to create their own beehive and um, and have independent and uh, blessed lives uh, create create a, a standard for education and good nutrition and good sanitation and all of these things that we take for granted completely take for granted. So, uh, before I let you go, um, you've you've been to India, right? And you, this is a specific part of India. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on the, the recent uh, furor over the, uh, the problem of rape in, in India. So, well, first of all, that's not a recent furor. So this is something that happens on a daily basis. I think what is extraordinary in this instance is that the victim's father spoke out. He wanted the world to know that, the, that her name is Jyoti Singh Panji. And that is extraordinary. That's an amazing use of the media for advocacy. I mean, he's demonstrating exactly what we've been talking about here today, that this father spoke his daughter's name and said, I want you, each person, to know who my daughter was, that she had a name, she had an identity, she was a person. And as Lynn and I are completely aware, having been in India, rape is a reality. And... Um, It's not just a reality in India, but in most of the third world. One of the things that was asked of us is, could we locate bicycles so that the girls could safely ride to school and not be afraid of rape on the way to school? Or to gather water. Mm. So this is is an old problem. The, The focus on it is new, it seems like, at least worldwide. And it seems like there's a there's 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 a shift in India itself. It seems like, in terms of people marching, I don't know whether there will be changes. Yes, well, let's see how sustained that positive energy is. I mean, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of women raped in India every day. Or 
thrown on the funeral pyres of their husbands or or killed and not, with acid and not told or, that they were dead. Yes. Right. So this is this is not a new problem, and I think it does point out um, one of the fundamental purposes of great journalism is to bring these things to light, and then of advocacy to amplify those issues. And uh, it 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 amazed me just sitting here today to hear Martin say, "Oh, he wouldn't have acted had you know our voices not come through the phone to to ask for that help." So I do think. I do think the personal is very powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, we can we can um, get a megaphone. We can use all this um, language. Uh, we can uh, put photographs out there. But really, in the end, I think you you're moved to action by by the 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 contact with other people, with other human beings. And people are moved to action in this rape case because they can look at the newspaper and see Joti's father's face. Mm-hmm. And they can look at his face and say, that could be my daughter. That could be my child. That's what moves people, is, mm-hmm. is exactly what Lynn is saying, the personal connection that people can feel to something. You could read all the data in the world and it not make a difference. I could tell you the average life expectancy in Odisha is 59, and we could say, okay, that's fine. But until you look at someone's face and say, Laxman, who lives in the corporate community, is 60. Mm-hmm. And he's past that age, and he's still laying bricks for latrines for a Brahmin. And not for his own house. Yeah. So is that you, you have to put a face on it? There's something, there's something that's not working, obviously, the way, and it happens all over the world. These problems in India, we haven't been aware of these in, in the terms of the, the, we're aware of them now because of this horrible incident. But journalistically, so, I want to say, last time I was in India... I read the Hindu Times right before I got on the plane, and there were three articles about female oppression on the front page of the Hindu Times. Hmm. This is an English-language newspaper. One was about a terrible rape and killing in Bihar. One was about a high court ruling that if a woman denies her husband sexual pleasure, he can divorce her. Um, And another one was um, a case of abuse. All on the front page of the Hindu Times. So some things are changing then, at least in India. I don't in, think in, so. Oh, okay. Oh, you're you're saying the, the fact that these are still on the front page. Correct. Uh, it's it's still going on. Right. Okay. Yes, but isn't that part of our responsibility? I mean, we have to be international citizens, especially here. Uh, every people go on a two year mission. You leave your homes. You're not. You know, we can't afford to be insular anymore. And so uh, I think to say that we don't know about this trend or that trend is really with the nature of media and uh, and new media and all these, you know, multiple ways of, of uh, reaching each other. There's really no excuse for not knowing. Mm. It's out there. We're just maybe we're locked yes. into what we're uh, reading. I think we just want to be comfortable. Mm. We want to be protected. Okay. We and wanna, self-selecting. You know, yeah. Yes. And so what does it take to move you out of your comfort zone? Christy knows what it takes now. Yeah. But we'll take care of her when we get there. <laughs> Very good. We've been talking about the Corporate Survivors Project, Overcoming Religious Extremism in India. And we've been talking with National Geographic photojournalist Lynn Johnson. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, human rights advocate Jen Saffron. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, with uh, Martin Peterson. Thanks to you. And uh, Christy Benedict. Thank you. Both with the Corporate Survivors Project. 
And the Morris Media and Society Lecture on the USU campus will be given. Uh, it's titled uh, Building Bridges When Journalism and Advocacy Meet. That's uh, this morning, 1130 in the Performance Hall on the USU campus. It'll be given by Lynn Johnson and Jen Saffron. If you'd like to learn more about the Corporate Survivors Project and perhaps help these people in India, uh, the best place to go, communityhousepittsburgh.org slash corporate, and corporate spelled K-O-R-A-P-U-T.